everyone, this is Rafael Destai and I'll be hosting the Being an Engineer podcast. We got a special guest today. He goes by the name of Aaron Munker and he is usually the host of this podcast, but I'll have the honor of interviewing him today and asking him some valuable questions. Aaron, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you for hosting today, Raf. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Uh, you started the company Pipeline Design and Engineering and it doesn't have to do with pipelines. It has to do, the name came from, uh, you're from a beach in Hawaii named Pipeline. Could you explain the name, how it came about? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, I grew up in Hawaii on uh, the island of Oahu. And in high school, I got really into surfing, uh, bodyboarding, actually, for those of you who know what that is. Um, and there's a beach up on the North Shore called Bonsai Pipeline. Most of us just refer to it as Pipeline. And it's one of the most famous surfing beaches on the world. Incredible waves, lots of competition, just A-plus um, surfers up there. And that's that's where the name came from. It's really just a, a throwback to my days surfing in Hawaii. Exactly. So when you guys hear the name Pipeline, you should think about a beautiful beach in Hawaii and not an actual pipeline. That's right. We don't do anything with oil. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how did you start Pipeline? I started Pipeline because I got laid off. And it was one of the best things that has ever happened to me. Uh, this was back in 2008, the recession. Uh, the company I was working for at the time, a great company, just really strong, solid, smart people that worked there. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I had become, uh, I had lost interest in the engineering work I was doing there. I became disengaged. And like I said, there were smart people working there. So I think it became um, pretty obvious to them that, that my head wasn't really in the game anymore. And uh, uh, 2008 came along, the recession hit, and they had to make some changes in the organization to, uh, to stay in business. And, and so they let me go. Um, I left the company one day as a W-2 employee, and I came back the next day as a 1099 contractor. And I did that for a little while. Um, it was okay, but I realized after uh, a month or two that it, it was a, a, probably a much better deal for them than it was for me. Uh, I actually made less money um, because you know I didn't have the benefits and things like that. So I started I started looking for some of my own work just as a, a freelancer, and. Um, uh, during this time, I, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I just don't like engineering anymore. I, I'm, I've been disengaged at work. I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing anymore. So I started looking into all kinds of different things, commercial real estate, web design, photography. Uh, I, I thought that I just didn't love engineering anymore and I wanted to do something else. Uh, about that time, my father-in-law, uh, who's a, a a seasoned businessman himself we were talking one day and he said so what why are you looking at all these other things you have so much experience already doing engineering and he suggested that maybe it wasn't engineering that I didn't like anymore but it was just the way that I was doing engineering and I thought you know that that makes a lot of sense maybe I should give this another shot and that's when I started uh, looking for some work as a freelancer on my own and I got a few small jobs in the beginning, and it was 
transformational for me because I realized that instead of being uh, a cog in the machine, I could I could be the entire machine from start to finish. I could I could run the projects the way I thought they should be run. And uh, again, that way it was just transformational for me, and I I, uh, I regained the a love of of engineering and in the process discovered. I, yeah, I do like engineering, but I think what I like even more is is being a business owner, and that's how that's how it got started. Very interesting. And as a as a single digit answer, how many people are on your team right now? Nine. Okay. What I found most interesting about this story is that most people that venture out on their own and uh, do work for hire work, they end up doing the work just themselves. They don't end up hiring a team and building a company. So, what is it about you that is different from the individual that I described before? And how can one transition from being the individual that just does the work for hire to building a team? For me, it was really organic. In fact, in the beginning, I didn't want to work with anyone else. Uh, I, I'm very much the, the uh, typical engineering type. I like to work by myself. Um, I'm very comfortable alone in a quiet room versus with a big group of people in a, a more social setting. And at the beginning, I, I just wanted to do my own thing, be a freelancer just by myself. Um, and I did for a few years, and things started growing slowly, organically. I began getting more jobs and bigger jobs. And uh, after um, after probably a year of working 60 to 70-hour weeks, I thought, you know, may, maybe I should bring some people on and not do this all myself. It was getting to be too much. And so I brought some contractors on and that helped greatly. And uh, things, you know, kept kept rolling slowly but surely growing. And after a while, I, I hired some of those people and then I hired more people. So it was really kind of more organic growth for me um, and kind of a surprise because, like I said in the beginning, I just wanted to do my own thing by myself. Uh, at this point, I'm very, very grateful for the team that I have. Uh, we have just some tremendous people that work at Pipeline, and I cannot imagine going back to the scenario where it was it was just me. That would not be fun for me anymore. I see. Well, so many things to ask you. Let's see. Um, how did you the, the skill set of being an engineer versus hiring? Many people in the industry, if you listen to other podcasts, they mention hiring as being one of the most important things about a company. How did you learn the skill set from hiring? I think I'm still learning that skill set. Um, a lot of things that I have done have been trial and error. You know, I didn't really have any training. Uh, in a lot of these areas, I was figuring stuff out as I went along. Um, in the beginning, the way I found people was I would I would go to this site. I uh, can't remember what it is off the top of my head right now, but it's it's basically an online directory of of design designers, not necessarily all engineers, but many of them were engineers. And so I'd go on there and kind of look through people's portfolios, and I'd find a portfolio that I liked. I'd see work in there that was very much in alignment with the kind of work that I knew we needed to do at Pipeline. And then I'd just reach out cold to these people and say, hey, are you interested in doing some contract work for me? That's how I found the first few contractors. Um, and 
just working with them, got to know them a little bit. And there were several people that I, I worked with in the beginning and just, you know, didn't really feel it, um, didn't love their work, didn't love communicating with them. Uh, but by working with these people on a contract basis, I was able to get a pretty good feeling for who's doing a good job, who, who do I like working with, who's easy to communicate with and who's not and kind of filter out the ones that that just you know um, weren't a good fit. Um, moving forward, I, I've used you know Craigslist and and tool, tools like that. Um, and most of the people I've hired, uh, I'd say half the people I've hired, I did not spend a lot of time vetting. I just had a really good feeling about them. Call it intuition, whatever it was, but. I talked with them for you know a couple of hours, a couple of different meetings, and had a really good feel about with them. Um, communication was good. I, I had seen their portfolios and some work that they had done. So I guess for me, it comes down to show me what you've actually done. I, I don't really care much about the piece of paper that says where you graduated from and <laughs> what your GPA was. Like That just doesn't matter to me. But show me what you've done. Show me what you can actually do. And then communicate with me a little bit enough so that I know your uh, I call them the, your kindergarten skills are good. You're you're a, a nice person. You're you're um, uh, you're you're easy to talk to. Uh, and that's uh, those two things, I guess, have been the big ones for me in terms of how to how to hire. The kindergarten skills. I like the way that sounds. We should trademark that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't think we can. I, yeah, I, it came from someone else. Um, yeah, the, there's a, a book called Joy Inc. written by the CEO of a software development company, Menlo Innovations. Really cool company, really innovative approach to the development process. They do software, not hardware like we do, but um, a lot of really applicable ideas. And uh, one of the things that the CEO writes is that when they hire someone, um, they're not even looking at technical skill at all. They're looking at kindergarten skills. How nice is the person to other people? And that's where that came from. I, I really liked it. I see. Let's let's talk about you. Maybe this is something that a lot of managers listening to this podcast that they may, may struggle with. One of the hardest things. When you hire, uh, in addition to the kindergarten skills, what do you look for in a portfolio that's going to let you know that this individual has the skill set to contribute in your company pipeline? Hmm. Um, I like people who can do not just functional work, but uh, have an eye for making things look nice as well. I think that there's a correlation between that that um, that that skill for making something look nice and and uh, attention to detail or just deep uh, care and consideration in their work. So that's one thing I'd look for is is not just you know pure mechanical aptitude, but um, do they have consideration for for making things look nice as well. Um, another thing I've looked for is, uh, you know, it's really easy to tell um, a, a student's portfolio from someone who's experienced their portfolio. There, there are things that uh, you can look for that, that let you know this design might look nice, might look cool, but it really wasn't designed to be manufactured. In other words, you might you might try to build this thing and it's probably not going to work versus someone who's really experienced 
and they have thought through the details like tolerance stackups and and draft and um, uh, other design for manufacturing considerations and those are definitely things that that I've also looked for in portfolios. You can't always tell all those details just by a portfolio. So um, oftentimes I'll have people design something. I'll give them a quick design challenge and say, you know, spend half a day and do this design challenge. And then I'll look through their work and, and try and uh, glean some insights from uh, from what I see. Very well. So for all the students listening out there, that's a golden tip right there for you. Uh, tell us about your employee retention. From my understanding, it's been pretty outstanding. How have you achieved that? Yeah, um, we we have a good group of people together. One of uh, we have three core values at, at Pipeline, and, and number one is we treat our customers well. We treat our team members better, and the focus there is not so much on treating our customers well, which of course we do and is very important, but it's on treating our team members really exceptionally well, and that's something that I've always followed, and uh, I think it's been a big factor in retaining. Um, not just key talent, but but really just high quality, good people. Well, you mentioned the aesthetics being an important factor, and the engineers on the pipeline team um, have this capability because you hire them. And I looked on your website, and you do test fixture design for medical devices. So a lot of people, when they think about that, they may think of first. I'll, I'll ask you to define it, and then if you could explain uh, if you apply aesthetics to that and how so. Sure. Um, uh, turnkey test fixtures and automated equipment, that's that's kind of our main focus. And uh, a lot of medical device companies have to do extensive verification and validation testing of their devices to ensure that they function correctly. This is an FDA requirement uh, for medical device manufacturers. So we, we build a lot of the equipment that allows these device companies to do their testing and prove to the FDA that yes, this device works as intended and it's safe to sell and, and, and to be used uh, in the market. So that's what, uh, that's what it is. Um, in terms of aesthetics for, for fixtures, uh, I will say that we, we don't spend a lot of dedicated time, you know, like pulling in an industrial designer to making the fixtures and the equipment look beautiful. Um, I would love to do that, but I, it, it gets, I think it, uh, the, the return on investment for the customer just isn't there. So we don't really spend a ton of time um, beautifying these things. But I will say that we have several customers who've done the test fixture design, the equipment design in-house, and then they have, for one reason or another, reached out to us and asked us to come uh, help support those efforts and when we look at the difference between what we put together and, and what they put together, there is a very um, uh, visual difference. Uh, we, we like to black anodize our parts. It, it makes it look a little bit more polished, and they hold up a lot better to wear and tear over the years. As things, these things are cycled through hundreds and thousands of cycles. Um, <clears throat> we uh, um, We... What else am I trying to say here? The black anodized is one thing for sure. It just kind of looks nicer. And, you know, nothing else really comes to mind off the top of my head. But 
but uh, it's it's hard to verbalize what uh, what I see visually when we're looking at some of our work uh, compared to um, uh, maybe other people that don't focus on doing these test fixtures every day. It, it's just a cleaner aesthetic, and, and it's not just the aesthetic. It's it's uh, That's important because technicians using these things, whether they realize it or not, if they're using a fixture that's kind of cobbled together, it's really crude, uh, it doesn't look nice, even if it's perfectly functional, there's going to be this thing in the back of the technician's head that just doesn't feel right because it's it's a chaotic um, system that they're working with versus using something that's really cleanly put together. It doesn't have stuff, you know, hardware geometry where it doesn't need it. Uh, it's it's kind of minimized to just the core essentials. Uh, subconsciously, they're going to notice that. They do notice that. We've been told on numerous occasions by uh, um, technicians that work with, with our equipment that it's just it's easier to work with. It's a cleaner feeling and just a better user experience, which ultimately translates to um, better test results, uh, faster uh, test processes, things like that. So let me ask you something. So if our listeners want to get an idea, a visual of what some of our medical device test fixtures look like, what website should they go to? Uh, testfixturedesign.com. And then I would head over to the case studies section of that webpage. And we have quite a few uh, case studies with some nice pictures and videos of, of some of the equipment that we put together. All right, we'll make sure to include that link in the description of this podcast so many of you driving don't have to take out your phone and type in that website. I will carry on here. Um, it's not like we, we talked before, and one of your main goals was to growing the company. What's uh, one of the growing issues that come with, with that? Oh, uh, there are so many. Uh, for me, the biggest one has been learning how to do sales and marketing and I'd say that's been one of the biggest challenges of my career to date. Uh, I did not know how to do this. I, I still feel like I don't, I'm not very good at it, but I'm learning. Um, so just figuring out how to, uh, how to get our messaging right, how to be really clear to our customers about what it is we do and how we can help. And then uh, defining a sales process that that works for us. That's been a, a huge challenge for me. And it's something that, that we're still um, working on. Okay. So if any of our listeners have uh, any tips on that that they could give you, uh, how should they contact you to give you those tips and to give you a hand? Uh, they can reach out to us on the website. There's a contact page there. All right. Perfect. So we're trying to build a community here in this podcast. So... Everyone feel free to reach out to Aaron if, if there's any way that you can help and give some advice. But it also sounds like he's doing quite well. So 90 employees is not bad. All right. So let's see. What is one of your unique abilities? I feel like I'm very good at putting systems together. Um, I, I wrote an article that we published on LinkedIn recently called, Are Your Systems Aligned With Your Goals? And the idea behind that is we all have goals that we're trying to accomplish a lot of times we don't have a system behind how to accomplish those goals. We set them, we say, I want to accomplish X, Y, Z, but we don't really have a plan for how to do that. Um, so something I've done recently is I, I have some business goals that, uh, you know, key metrics that I need to be looking at on a regular basis that will help me um, set the trajectory for the company. And uh, 
previously, I kind of did them whenever I had a chance, which realistically meant that I, I, I didn't do them on a regular basis. And I, I just I wasn't seeing those reports and, and looking at the numbers like I should be. So uh, I was thinking about, you know, do I have a system in place to help me accomplish these goals? And I really I didn't. And so I put together a really basic, simple system where Monday mornings I have calendar recurring calendar events and there are several of them and a different event um, I have on, on different Monday mornings and in each of these different ev events prompts me to look at uh, one of these, these business reports looking at different metrics. Um, so that's an example of a, a real simple system that I put together that's that's helped me a lot. But in general, I, I like systems. I like knowing how to do things. You know, it, let's figure out what the, the, the best practice is, document that, and then uh, have everyone use that system. Um, trying to think of maybe some, some other examples. We have quite a few, uh, we call them standards documents at Pipeline. They're um, standard operating procedures, their templates, their references. I think we have 80 or 100 of them now. I, I have put together uh, most of them. Certainly some other team members have contributed to that effort. But uh, I feel like that's been one of the big contributions that I've been able to give is to put together all of these these standards, these systems. And it's something I enjoy and I think I'm I'm pretty good at it. Really quickly, which one's your, what software do you utilize to keep track of your Gantt charts and assign tasks? And why do you prefer that software? There are a few software tools that I use. Um, one of them is called Rike, W-R-I-K-E. It's a project management software. Um, it's, it's very inclusive. They have lots of different tools. Uh, you can keep track of time. You can assign tasks. You can have... Um, task-specific messaging going back and forth. There's Gantt charts for scheduling. Um, uh, I ended up using choosing to use Rike after evaluating a few of the different ones out there, and I just felt like this was the most comprehensive and, and unified. Some of the other ones I, I looked at felt like they were kind of piecemealed together almost, like Gantt chart, you had to go to this different area to use, then um, you know, messages within project tasks. So uh, it's just, it's a really clean interface, which goes back to my, my thing about aesthetics. Again, aesthetics are not just useful because they look pretty. To me, aesthetics are important because they convey to the user the fact that uh, the person behind this development is is really considerate and caring deeply about what they're doing. And, and that shows up in, you know, usability ways and, and uh, things like that. So Rike is a big one. Uh, Dropbox is huge. We use Dropbox to, to you know, sync all of our files between uh, team members. Um, I also use a, an application called Airtable, which is, is uh, has been great. I've been using that for a few years now. Um, it, it's basically a, a list-making application with, with a lot of bells and whistles. So I, I use it to make all kinds of different lists, things that I keep track of. Um, uh, my, my daily task list, I, I use that for. Uh, so th those are probably three of the big ones, um, Rike, uh, Airtable, and Dropbox. Wonderful. So let's talk about um, a lot of 
I listen to other podcasts and entrepreneurs and, and companies, when they outsource their engineer work, they're looking for a partner rather than someone that they can just go to a couple of times and then the, the engagement is over. And to my understanding, uh, there's a couple of large companies that work with you and they, they've called you, Pipeline, a partner. So how did you do to achieve this this relationship with them? Any tips that you could give any other managers listening to this? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, it comes back to kind of the, the kindergarten skills, right? It's just trading people well, um, doing what you promised to do, uh, getting things done on time. I mean, it's it's. I want to say it's it's basic stuff, but in application, it it can be really challenging to to do what you say what uh, you say you're going to do and, and get things done on time and within budget. And truthfully, we're, we're not always on time and we're not always on budget, but we usually are. Um, and at the end of the day, I think the quality of our work has been uh, a huge factor in developing some of these, these partnerships we have. Um, but also it's this level of trust. Uh, our customers, they really trust us. In fact, a lot of our customers, they don't even go anywhere else to have uh, projects quoted. They just they have us quote it, and we're the only ones that quote it, and then they move forward because they trust that uh, not only are we going to get the job done correctly, but but we're we're going to charge a fair price for it, and not you know not try and gouge them or anything like that. Absolutely, uh, you talked about communication and the kindergarten skills. Nowadays, as we all know, most communication is done via email. Uh, is there one or two golden nuggets that you could provide to our listeners as to how to implement the kindergarten skills via email communication? Yeah, um, I can't remember what the percentages are right now, but uh, a, a large, a majority percentage of communication is not verbal. It is facial expressions and you know gestures, body body language. Um, and in email, we lose that. So I think it's really important to be very, very careful in how you word your email. Uh, read through it. If there's any way that it could be misconstrued to be, you know, not respectful or not thoughtful of the, the other person's situation, um, just being really careful in how you word your email so that it comes across as being very respectful and also very um, clear and specific. Is there any specific word or phrase that you'd like to sprinkle in to lighten the tone of emails? Uh, I love to start with thank you. Um, people need to know that they're appreciated and and um, recognized. So uh, oftentimes I'll start by just saying, you know, thank you for whatever it is that they're asking or maybe something was just done. So thank you for whatever it's been. Um, and then, you know, just using please and, uh, um, let's see, is there anything else I can think of an email? Nothing else is coming to mind right off the, right off the bat, but, uh, maybe I'll come back to that if, if anything else comes to mind. So you mentioned that earlier in your career, you like to work alone and then you transition into who you are today. Uh, a lot of managers, a lot of actual engineers may may feel the same way. They like to work alone. So if you were to have multiple engineers uh, that like to work alone in a team, but they need to collaborate on certain projects, what are some things that you could do as the manager to facilitate that communication between the engineers? 
I think it's important to understand how different people communicate. You know, some some people might really enjoy a lot of social interaction, and other people maybe not so much. Um, so understanding how people communicate, and then trying to tailor uh, how you engineer these interactions to to leverage people's different communication skills. Okay, I would like to go a layer deeper. Uh, so that that sets the foundation for the, this question. Could you give uh, perhaps an example of the different personality types, if you will, and how to tailor the management approach for each one? Hmm. It seems like this all comes very natural to you. And I just want to break it down for some of our listeners who may not be so, as good as you and it may not be so natural at this. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I can't think of a specific example right now. Uh, ask me the question once more. Maybe that'll jog something. Okay. How about if you were to have an engineer that's extremely intelligent, but maybe he or she takes uh, longer usually or has a hard time with deadlines, what are some things you could do to help this engineer um, keep the quality of work but also meet the deadlines? Well, this might not be a direct answer to what you're asking, but what I have learned is that people have different strengths and um, it is nearly impossible to take a person with uh, an ABC set of skills and have them do XYZ effectively. Uh, I have fallen into this trap several times myself where we'll have a team member that's, that's really good at doing one thing, but maybe kind of struggles doing something else. And for whatever reason, we just, we need this engineer to do that something else. And so we assign a task to that engineer and uh, it, it almost never goes well. Um, so I think it's really important that we understand what different people do well and not try to force them to do something else. How do you know when it's something that the engineer just flat out, it's not one of their strengths, can do well versus... Maybe they're just, um, it's their first time going at it, and maybe they can actually get better at it. How do you know which one they are? Well, part of it just comes from experience. If you work with someone long enough, you'll get an idea for where their strengths are and, and where their weaknesses are. Um, there are, uh, you know, these... Uh, personality tests like strength finders, one of them where uh, a person can take the test and that'll give you an idea for what they're really good at and what they're maybe not so good at. So there are things like that that you can do um, to help get a rough idea for where people's strengths are. But I think at the end of the day, you just need to spend time working with them. As an employer, do you find it more valuable to have an engineer on your team that's extremely good at a couple of things? versus an engineer that's more well-rounded but not as good in certain areas? We're a small company, and so it's really important for us to have people that are pretty good at a large number of things as opposed to people who are really, really good at just one or two things. So I, I tend to look for the engineers that can wear several hats, you know, 80 90%. Okay. What would you tell today uh, your younger self when you started, if you were a brand new engineer, that you wish you would know back then? So any advice for you back then? Um, for me, I think I would just say be open to change. 
you know, like I said back when I started, I, I just wanted to do my own thing, be a freelancer, not worry about employees. And, and that certainly changed. Uh, and then for a long time, I was really interested in being um, a project manager. That's where I wanted to focus all my time. I didn't, I didn't really want to do the engineering work. I wanted to be the engineering manager. And that was great also. And, and then uh, it changed again to where I didn't really want to be the one managing the project. I wanted to be the one building the business. And uh, uh, previously, those weren't like big desires that I had. So over time, you know, your, your ambitions and your goals, they just change. And I think it's really important to be aware of the fact that you yourself are going to change over time. What's one book that you would recommend to someone listening out there that perhaps is uh, doing freelance work themselves and wants to take that next step and to start building their company and hiring people? What's one book that could help them that comes to mind? Okay, this might not be the one that you're uh, thinking about, or not that you're thinking of one in particular, but uh, there's a book I read recently called Why We Sleep, and it's been one of the most compelling books I've read. Um, it, it talks about, it's kind of a trend, right? It's it's a uh, not a fad, but it's popular the past couple of years. People are talking about sleep and how important it is, and I, I've always appreciated that. You know, it's important to get good sleep, but reading this book, um, it, it is scary, some of the things that uh, science has proven in, in very controlled studies, um, how detrimental poor sleep can be to your overall, not just your health, but your mental well-being. So anyone who is trying to accomplish anything of, of significance, um, I think it's so important to to get really good sleep. And so, uh, yeah, if you're, you know, trying to start your own freelance thing or whatever you're trying to do, if you have some ambition and some goals, uh, that is one place that I would start is, is getting really good quality sleep every night. All right. So with that being said, let's hope that this podcast didn't put you to sleep. No, just kidding. Um, I hope you all very much enjoy the podcast. We had Aaron Moninker, the CEO and president of Pipeline, and this is Rafael Testai interviewing him. From now moving forward, it's going to be Aaron interviewing all the other guests in the show. All right, so put, feel free to check out the notes uh, in the comments below. And thank you so much, everyone. Please don't forget to rate us five stars in whatever platform you listen to the podcast. That really helps us. I'm Aaron Moninker, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>